Dear friends, we're in the midweeks, and this is a very important chapter of Second Samuel. It's the big one. This is the David and Bathsheba story, and this is the downfall of the house of David. Similarly to how Saul had a rocky uh, go of it, and he kind of had some high points, but then he had a very extended downfall. So this is where David's kingdom goes from more or less up and up and up and up. The high point being David receiving the promise from God uh, that his lineage would endure and showing covenant faithfulness to Mephibosheth and his military victories to this incident, which is going to usher in um, years of civil war, or maybe not years of civil war, sorry. There's going to be um, murder amongst the king's sons because of this. And David really will never regain the height of his uh, influence through this. So this is a a bad chapter, but it is important and told because one of the big questions of uh, the entire scriptures, especially the Old Testament, is how does God keep his promises to an unfaithful people? God makes promises to his people over and over again, starting in the garden when he promised that a seed of the woman would crush the serpent of the head and promises to the people of Israel in the time of Moses. Promise to Abraham that his descendants would be like the as numerous as the sand on the sea. Uh, promises that they'd inherit the land. Um, but he's always making promises to people who are unfaithful and sinful and covenant breakers and people who don't deserve God's faithfulness because they regularly are unfaithful. And so now that God has made this uber promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne of Israel forever, here comes the challenge to the promise, which is David's unfaithfulness to the Lord through what he does with Bathsheba and Uriah. And so that's why these stories need to be told, because this is God's story, first of all. It's about God's kingdom coming into the earth before it's about David's kingdom being established on the earth. And it's about God's faithfulness and God's promises before it's about David's faithfulness and David's promise keeping. And so the, the scriptures tell us these stories about God's people being unfaithful so that we can learn about how God is faithful. But without any further ado, let's get into this story. Chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, and David remained at Jerusalem. So, you know, last time I was talking, maybe I'd, I'd understood that David's armies had stayed besieging the Ammonites, and now it doesn't sound like that. Now it sounds like they maybe came home for the winter or maybe for the harvest or whatever it is, but they they remember they've got a bone to pick with the Ammonites. So when it's time for battle in the spring, you know, probably once the crops are planted and people are free to go out and fight while the crops are growing, and then they have to come back for the harvest because the soldiers are also mostly farmers, uh, they have time to go do battle. Now they're going to pick this fight with the Ammonites who had dishonored David's servants and gone to war with them, with the Syrians. And so now they're going to go and besiege Rabbah. But David stays home. And this is not a good sign. This is a sign of a dereliction of duty. So when it says when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Um, this David should have been there. And so David staying at home was not a good choice. Verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, 
And she came to him and lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, and then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Okay, so there's lots going on here. This is going to be a story of messengers, people sending messages one way or another. David sends a message to get your Bathsheba. She sends a message that she's pregnant. David's going to send a message to Joab to have Uriah brought home and then killed. God is going to send a message to Nathan to confront David. So this is a story of messengers, kings and their messengers, really. <clears throat> but um, David is in his castle and he's, <clears throat> excuse me, his house, whatever's going on. He's on the rooftop, maybe praying, whatever. But he sees a woman bathing and she's very beautiful. And David inquires about the woman and somebody knows who she is. That's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, let's unpack this a little bit. Uriah is one of David's mighty men. I think he's one of the 30 that's counted later on in the book. So he's part of David's honor guard. He's part of David's Navy SEAL clan. Essentially, this is what it is, is that David is the head of his own elite Navy SEALs unit, and Uriah is one of those Navy SEALs. He's one of the best of the best. He's not just some nobody, and he's a Hittite, so he's actually not an Israelite, but he's uh, come to faith in David, and he's come to faith in God, and he's joined himself to the king of Israel as one of his honor guard, one of his Navy SEALs. And Eliam is actually, I think, the son of Ahithophel, who is one of um, David's top counselors. So later on, when there's a rebellion, and David's son Absalom is leading a rebellion against David, Ahithophel joins with Absalom, and very likely because he hasn't forgiven David for what David did to Bathsheba, because this is a family affair for him. So this is uh, palace intrigue. This is stuff that's going on within the palace, uh, part of David's honor guard, a family member of uh, David's counselor, Ahithophel. And so um, this is this is this is like this weird. This is like becomes like a soap opera. This is all happening w within people within this like closed community of the royal household. And very likely that Bathsheba was given to Uriah as uh, Ahithophel joining in the palace uh, marrying within the palace kind of thing or Uriah was granted Bathsheba as some kind of reward for his mighty val valorous deeds on behalf of Israel similar to that uh, Saul's daughter was granted to David because of his military prowess but we don't know but what I want you to know is that these aren't unknown entities these people were all in the palace so to speak <clears throat> and so David sends for her he knows that she's married. He sends to her, probably in his head saying, well, we'll just meet her. But he sends for her. He lays with her. There's this note about her um, purifying herself from her uncleanness, which, ex which explains the bathing. So she's done having her period, and she's going through her ritual purification that's required in the law um, for that. And so she is, you know, fertile. And because she's fertile, this one afternoon stand um, ends up becoming... Uh, a baby and so the consequences of what David's done here becomes very 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 real for him and he's going to try to deal with it as as kings have done in the past with political machinations instead of um, something else now before we go on uh, scholars try to argue about like what was going on with Bathsheba here she's a very passive person she doesn't speak in this story except to say I am pregnant. She, she's not given an active role. 
Um, and so we don't really know what's going on here, here but it you wonder, you know, how active she was in this. Um, did she go along with it because she was intimidated by the king? Or was she intrigued to be beautiful in the sight of the king? Somebody's asked before, why was she bathing in a place that could be seen from the king, from the king's rooftop? <clears throat> did she know it? Did she know that she could be seen there? Why wasn't she inside more? So we don't totally know, but <clears throat> we're also not told that Bathsheba put up a fight. Now, you can say, Rob, that's really unfair, but, <clears throat> excuse me, we are t told in a later story that when Abnam was um, taking advantage of Absalom's sister, she did put up a fight, and we're told that. And so we just don't know, and that's fine, but it's we're not given a lot of clues that Bathsheba wasn't in some way a willing participant of becoming um, a mistress of the king. <clears throat> Excuse me. Shouldn't have had that drink of Coke before I did this. All right, in verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So this is all pretense. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went down to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king, very likely booze or food. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house and all his servants, sorry, with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a long journey? Why don't you go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and his, the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. So what a shaming event. Obviously, David's brought Uriah home so that he can go and have a one night, <laughs> a night with his wife. And then his wife can claim that, uh, that this is Uriah's child. And maybe it was born early, but... They're, they're looking for a lie to cover the adultery. And Uriah is, at least in his nobility, won't go do this because he sees himself as a Navy SEAL and he's one with his brothers and his brothers are out living in the field. And so he wants to be united with them as well as just saying like um, the Ark's in, in a booth, all of Israel's in a booth. He's not wanting to treat himself better than the rest of Israel which really shames David, who didn't go to war and did decide that because he's the king, he gets to treat himself better than Israel by permitting himself to commit adultery. And so what, whatever's going on here, Uriah's uh, righteous, noble heart is really shaming the king's actions. And some people would even have suggested that maybe Uriah even suspected that something was up and is, is uh, shaming the king. I don't totally think so, but for sure, for sure, um, we see just the contrast between Uriah, the Hittite, not the Israelites, noble character and faith in God, and David's unbelief in action. 12. 
Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he didn't go down to his house. And so David says, Okay, I'll send you, stay here today, I'll send you tomorrow. But then because Uriah didn't go home that day, he kept him another day. And because Uriah didn't go home that day, he brought him to the to the the king's presence and made him drunk hoping that even in his intoxication he would go down to his wife but even a drunk Uriah has more self-control than David did so David has to change tactics verse 14 in the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah in the letter he wrote set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die and as Job was besieging the city he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men in the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Okay, so we'll stop there, but just think, like, Uriah gets this order to have Joab, or, sorry, Job gets this order to have Uriah essentially put to death, and Joab goes along with it. Perhaps because his faith is also compromised by what he did to Abner before, killing him in peace times <clears throat> for something that happened in battle. So, Joab, like I've said before, sometimes sometimes appears to have faith and sometimes is godless, but is always shrewd. So Joab's going to deal with this shrewdly, even though he's sinning according to the king's order. And so he has Uriah killed. But David and Joab's participation with this actually cost other people their lives. It says some of the servants of David fell among, among the people fell. So Uriah's the target, but there's collateral damage here of other soldiers dying because of David's desire to see Uriah, the problem of Uriah, go away. Verse 18, Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you finish telling all the news about the fighting of the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jeru Jerushabeth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you not go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So he said at the beginning that this is a st really a story of servants, and you can tell because the servants get a lot of speech. They, they, they say as much as David did, these, these people giving messengers, giving servants here. And so it gives you this sense of people trying to, this is like a war of words, right? Actions being promoted by people's words, actions being concealed by people's words. And so Joab has done David's bidding here, and now he needs to add a layer of deception on top of the deception by giving the messenger a message that will both excuse Joab's loss of soldiers while also letting David know that his dirty deed has been accomplished. And so the messenger is being used for sin in this. Verse 22. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained advantage over us and came out against us in the field, and we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. So the messenger, this is either a bit more of a summary of what happened, or the messenger just decided to go to just summarize what Joab had said and make it a bit shorter, which is true it's interesting that Joab like has this big speech and references Old Testament stories from the book of Judges and blah 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 
Um, jo Joab is getting loquacious to cover his guilty conscience. The messenger doesn't have a guilty conscience, and so he has a much more succinct and direct delivery of the message. Verse 25, David said to the messengers, Thus shall you say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. So message relayed, and so they're, they're sending these secret messages back and forth to each other uh, through the words of the messenger who's unsuspecting. So just notice how the deception's gone on top of deception's gone on top of deceptions. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. That's good. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. You better believe it. Verse 27, the end of this chapter, God has been watching this whole thing. David's really kind of lost his faith. He's got this kind of spiritual, temporary insanity, which all sin does. All sin has a level of deception about it. Because if we knew what we were doing, that God was watching us 100%, and that we were sinning against him and committing a crime and harming ourselves and harming our neighbor and everything that sin is, we would never sin. So all sin involves a suspension of reality for us. All sin involves self-deception in order to do it. You have to not know what you're doing in order to sin. You have to be deceived. And that that's in some way or another, we always are. But for, for real, for real here, David is deeply, deeply deceived um, about his ability to get away with stuff. Now that he's king, he can get away with stuff, right? No. And so that line there, the thing that David had done has displeased the Lord. This is the transfer. Um, well, there's a car horn honking outside. So uh, if you can hear that, you're welcome. This is the where the story is going to really shift, and the Lord is going to now take over from this. David's been uh, allowed to r let his sin run on its choke chain, and now God is going to reel him back in. But it's very grievous what happened. Um, very, very, very terrible. And this, this, this intrigue, this palace intrigue, um, this, this uh, open secret of what happened. You know, so many people know exactly what David did because all these servants are are delivering uh, Bathsheba's to and from the castle and and answering David's questions. It's this open secret about what happened um, can't be covered and won't be covered. And God's going to act. But up to this point, David thinks that his this gifts that God has given him in the kingship he can use to get away with stuff, and this isn't good. So this is a hard chapter, but we're, the next chapter is going to be very difficult for David, but also with a sign of hope in it, because even though the child that David and Bathsheba conceived through the adultery is going to die under judgment from the Lord, the next child they have is going to be Solomon. And the scripture is going to declare that Solomon is loved of the Lord. So even in the midst of judgment, is going to come a real grace from God to reveal God's character. That he's a gracious God choosing to persevere in blessing in the midst of judgment even. And choosing to respond to humility with more grace. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And when David does humble himself in the next chapter, there's going to be consequences and they're going to be severe, but there's going to be grace coming to David. And one of the practical ways this is going to happen is by allowing David's successor to be born through Bathsheba, Solomon, who is named Jedidiah, beloved of the Lord.